Hi, and welcome to Embark. I'm Liz Solar, and we're about five months into a writer's strike and another couple months into an actor's strike, and we just want our entertainment. As you might imagine, the strikes are affecting more than actors and writers. That would be bad enough. But think of all the other creatives, like Colin Lyberg. He's a screenwriter, creative executive, and world traveler. He's with Cobalt Night, which is a genre production company focused on telling feature, series, and comic book stories about the human condition with touches of social commentary. For the past couple of years, he's run a creative hashtag virtual happy hour Zoom mixer to connect with friends and make new friends. Um, as for projects, probably not a lot of stuff going on right now, although he's finishing some edits on a TV pilot and also working on a couple of personal projects, which I'm sure we'll hear about. In any case, let's welcome Colin Lyberg. Welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I mean, we can talk about all the stuff that's been happening, but particularly in your business, where you're working with generating content programs, TV, film, games. So mm -hmm. you're involved in that world, developing it and pitching it. And we'll get to all of that. The digital age has made all of us authors and makers and writers and actors, even if that's not our profession, everybody is a writer now. Mm -hmm. And now you don't even have to be a body to be a writer. You can be AI. And so that's one of the topics that we're going to cover today on Embark, the writer's strike which I think the last writer's strike was 2007, 2008. And now there are over 11,000 people who are in the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, who are kind of sitting it out. And what does that mean? What does that mean for the industry right now, the industry of generating media, film, TV? Uh, first, I want to preface this by saying I am not a member of the WGA. Yet, this is just me speaking as someone who is in solidarity with them, who works in the business, uh, but I am not an official member. And if you want to know like the official positions, I'm trying to be as what I read and know of fellow writers, take what they have said, who get the actual emails from the negotiating committee, who then share it on occasion with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm trying to be informed, but I am not the voice of the WGA. Many of us can be in solidarity. Yeah. Being a writer is tough. People are not getting rich because they're writers. Correct. So I was just saying that to say that I'm trying to present the information that as I know it, which by the time this airs or 20 minutes from now, even while we're still talking, could potentially change because I'm not privy to all the information. Right. But in fact, I think probably overnight, there were some concessions that the studios yeah. were making to WGA. As you said, the, the writers and now actors are on strike and have been for the writers for more than 100 days and actors for about a month or so because they are in negotiations with the big conglomerate known as the AMPTP that represents the big streamers and networks that have an agreement in place of how much you get paid for doing what sort of project, all sorts of various things associated with making a program or a feature film or television or sometimes even commercials. That's a different uh, agreement so far as I know. To clarify, the AMPTP is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Yes. Okay. Uh, and there's 
about 300 or so um, in that big conglomerate. Obviously, the top eight are like Netflix and Disney and Apple and Amazon, you know, the studios you've heard of. But there's also lots of independent producers who like you'll never hear of. And you might see a movie of theirs maybe somewhere down the line. But they are considered part of that big conglomerate. I've actually forgot the question now. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much to get through. Well, yes. talking about th- there have been some concessions that the AMPTP have made, and I believe one of them is to let writers know how many people are actually streaming their shows. I, ha- I had not actually heard that. That's good to know, actually. I read that. Why is that important? Why is that an important piece of the negotiation? In the olden days, back before streaming, and when you know you actually um, had Nielsen ratings and could figure out what was popular and what wasn't, you know, the number one rated show on television or the number one new show on television or whatever it was called, those helped set advertising revenue for TV shows. When I was growing up, it was Must See TV, Thursday Nights on NBC. That's the big one. There was a block of Seinfeld and Friends and all those shows were on there. You knew what was popular because advertising rates were higher during those prime times. It's like now with the Super Bowl, you can charge $5 million for a 30-second commercial because you're going to have 100 million people watching. So when you know how many people are watching, you can determine what to actually charge for the advertising for the show. Streamers don't share that information. What they have been doing is they'll say, we'll give you X amount of money to make this show and usually a little more than you would make as a writer on a network show. And that's all you get. Because I actually had read something about, particularly during this the rise of streaming services, that writers will get paid kind of like one time to write the entire series rather than there used to be a process. We're going to write a pilot. We're going to see how it lands. And if it lands pretty well, we'll pick up the series and you will write every week, I guess, for this show, for the 26 episodes that I think used to run 26, 30, somewhere in there. But you would be paid probably more episodically than lump sum. So it seems like, hey, we want you to write the whole series now. And there are limited series, so they're not Mm -hmm. as long. So there might be six to 10 episodes, but you're writing them all now. We're going to pay you lump sum to do it now. And then if it takes off, you've probably, you know, made a bad deal for yourself. Yes, because in addition to working those in the old days, working those 26, 30, 42 weeks or whatever, you would also get paid residuals. When you would see a rerun on some other network, you got a small portion of the episode you wrote. If you're working for a year or two on a show, you might not work again for another two, three, four years while you're trying to develop the next pilot or get your next writing job. So it would provide you income while you are not working. But now when you have the one lump sum, not only you're not getting the residuals because it is airing again, uh, it's shorter. So that makes it difficult to have as much money. That whole amount has to keep you going through the bad times as well. I mean, this is a gig economy anyway. So people who never were part of a gig economy, people outside of actors and writers and artists, they have now become guest stars in whatever business they're in. You could be the guest accountant or the guest attorney. So that is what the gig economy has given us. It's like, okay, here's your three months of being a quote unquote consultant. Your time is up. Thank you for your service with no real benefits attached to it. So I want people to understand how most writers, actors, not everybody is Kate Winslet or Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks or any of the Toms that are are working consistently. And for 
a lot of money, most people are pretty much apprentice type workers. Here's your gig. Now it's it's here today, gone tomorrow. So on one hand, a, a lot of these actors, writers can sit this out for a while because actors and writers know that, okay, I'm going to go back to my bartending job or I'm working in the library or what, whatever that thing is that people cobble together so they can actually pay their rent. And try to live the dream. Yeah. They we're used to not getting paid for good or ill. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So, you know, we're used to waiting and we can keep doing what has kept us afloat in the meantime. Relating to that, you, you said, you know, not everyone is the Tom or the Kate or the there whoever. There's roughly 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild Association. I don't know what AFTRA stands for. The American Federation of Television and Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the guild for actors. Mm-hmm. There's 160,000 act. Most people could probably name 100, 200, like the A-listers. Yes. There's roughly 15,000 uh, WGA writers. Writers aren't usually well-known. You can probably name a handful, Taika Waititi, also director, people who, who do other things other than just writing generally. Right. J.J. Uh, Abrams. You know, most of these people aren't the well-known ones. They're the ones who, they're your background actors. They're the ones who make a guest appearance in your favorite show. And if you look at their IMDb credits, like, oh, you're in one episode, but I've seen you in a dozen things. You're a well-known actor, if you will, but you're not the A-list star that I'm coming to see, necessarily. Exactly. And one of the contentions in the SAG-AFTRA strike is that people who are, the majority of people who don't make blockbuster films and don't make blockbuster types of money, one of the biggest problems is a lot of those people who probably make $200 for standing around all day to be background or extras, is they're sitting around trying to cobble enough money to get benefits, which only have to make $26,500 to get benefits from SAG-AFTRA, but many people don't even meet that. One of the issues in the strike is using those background people's generating AI images of them and putting them into more background without their permission, I guess. I mean, I don't know who's going to monitor that type of action. If you're a big show like Game of Thrones or something where you had hundreds and hundreds of background actors, even if it is only $200 for a background actor for a day, that money does add up. Whereas if you just use a scanned image from another show, you don't have to pay that actor anymore. So they're trying to say that the AMPTP is trying to save money by scanning background actors so they don't have to pay them. But people are just trying to make a, a living and they deserve to get paid. Do you think that part of this stems from a justification to say, well, back in the day, we knew exactly how much we were going to make for that Seinfeld episode because we charged several thousand dollars per 30 seconds, 15 seconds, however long that commercial lasted. And with streaming, we need to depend on subscribers for that. I mean, there are like Hulu has the paid track and the unpaid track. So if you're watching Hulu and you don't pay for it, you're going to sit through commercials. But there are people who do pay for it. They're never going to have to watch commercials. And so for most streamers, if your Netflix, which seems to be a big target of a, a, <laughs> a lot of this unhappiness, if you are a Netflix, well, you know, what do you do with that? And in, in is sharing those numbers a way of saying, oh, hey, if we show you these numbers, writers, will that make a difference? What if the numbers aren't as high as perhaps the writers suspect? 
I don't know what the numbers are, but I don't see the reason for hiding them. If they're not as high uh, as we think they are, Netflix does release occasionally like, oh, this was our top to watch show. It had 3000 hours in, in a day or something or whatever the number is. Theoretically, that can give you some sort of idea of the number of people watching. If they do that for all the shows, it will likely show that they're not as popular as we'd like to think, so that um, they're hiding a bunch of bombs rather than... Th they will talk about their hits all day long. Obviously, we want hits and we want popular shows, and that's oftentimes what makes the world go round, is we're talking about the popular movie or the popular TV show. But Netflix has hundreds and thousands of TV shows, most of which probably don't show up on your uh, to-watch list or even the, the algorithm saying you should watch this because you might like it. There are things that pop up on my watch list that I would never watch. And I'm thinking, how did you, that is, Amazon does the same thing, or yeah, it yeah. will come up in your social media feeds. You will love these boots. It's like, mm, no, not so much. I wasn't even thinking about boots. There are some things the algorithms get right, and there's a lot more than it doesn't get right. Talk about the breadth of programs that there are now. Is that one of the issues that has to do with, well, we can't pay you as much because we have so many and the audiences are so small. I mean, back in the day, people would watch Seinfeld because it was one of the only games in town. Like there were only a few other shows that competed in that time slot. There were time slots that the networks deemed you will watch the show between 9 and 9.30. Now you can watch it anytime. That's one of the differences in programming now. Uh, yes. I, I want to say in... 2016 or 18 or somewhere like in the quote-unquote height of the streaming era, there were 500 or so, 600 new shows or shows on air at one point, some of which were huge, massive successes. Uh, the Game of Thrones, the um, Breaking Bads, that sort of stuff that everyone knew about and everyone was talking about. But there were some tiny shows that you probably never heard of, but people still worked on them. They were still employed just because... They're not known as well as other shows doesn't mean they shouldn't get paid. And so a show like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, or like now The Bear, that is a cultural touchstone. People are talking about it. People should get paid the residuals for it. And the money is there. They're just not sharing it. You know, only two people watch your show. You still deserve the, the residuals. So size does not matter in this case. No, they have the money somewhere. But if they share those numbers, Wall Street will get scared and their stock will tank, which means the executives, Reed Hastings and, and Ted Sarandos, aren't getting the $50 million a year that they're reported to. And so they, they won't be making as much money for the top execs. Right. I can't take out the hanky for that. <laughs> if you're <laughs> right? making a couple yeah. million dollars less of, of your $50 million for that show, you, you hate things to be like an us against them, but it really is sort of a little guy against the big guy because producers, maybe back in the day, like the heyday of Hollywood, those producers were integral to the quote unquote production of that movie. They really cared about the story. People can say what they will about the old studio system. Here, yeah. it's so divorced. Producers are actually so divorced from the content and more attached to the revenues of whatever they're creating or whatever yeah. they're in charge of. I don't even know how much they're creating at this point. The AMPTP is not all producers. Uh, there are lots of independent producers. I work for an independent production company. The AMPTP producers, most of the time, aren't actually producers 
producing the show. They will hire a company or companies oftentimes to, mm-hmm. to actually do the nitty gritty of producing who are the ones who are on set, who are giving script notes, who are you know, hiring actors and, and the crew and all that stuff. So it's not the AMPTP oftentimes doing that. And there's actually a petition to have the producers portion of their name removed from the AMPTP from actual producers like you're, you're not producers we're the producers let's not conflate this interesting but but it is a money thing it's the golden yes. rule if you have the gold you make the rules uh yes and and hollywood for more than 100 years now and the last couple years in particular makes massive massive profits billion dollar trillion dollar programs like barbie has just you know billion and a half dollars or something these companies uh, on their quarterly earnings calls they're you know raking in record profits talking to their shareholders we've made so much money blah 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 and then turn around and say oh we can't pay you you can't have it both ways but on the wga strike official website the negotiations, they've said, you know, this is our proposal. This is what the AMPTP has offered or countered with. If the WGA got everything they wanted, being a talk between the two companies, likely won't happen. But let's just say if they got everything, they're asking for roughly speaking, 430 million more a year that would go towards all 15,000 writers. And if a company is raking in billions of dollars, $430 million isn't that much. Drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. It is literally like, it's not even a quarter of a percentage point of how much these companies make. So mm-hmm. we're getting into like um, almost into what is five months at this point, which is a lot of time. There have been other strikes, which were 100 days, I think 150, 153 days. The last strike of 2007, 2008 resulted in more Verizon reality TV. And it seems like people like reality TV. Reality TV, when it started, say, like the real world, we're just going to turn on a camera and see what happens. You're still employing a bunch of people who are helping form a TV, even if there's not a, a script per se. Maybe ideas are being thrown out. But reality TV has morphed into shows that involve writers. What happens after this iteration of, you know, before there was a rise in reality TV because, well, we really don't have to pay actors, quote unquote, actors, writers as much. What happens in the wake of this particular strike, seeing that there are already many reality television shows? To clarify for people who don't know, there are basically two types of television shows. There's scripted content, which is everything that gets written beforehand. Basically, everything on primetime is going to be scripted content, all your law and orders, all your Ted Lassos, it's all written beforehand. And then there is, quote unquote, reality television, which is everything else. It could be a documentary program of found footage stuff. Uh, True crime is reality the 90 day fiance stuff is reality where you know you're filming a bunch of people following them around so it's it runs the gamut of high culture or just popular stuff could be a, an ongoing show that's lasted 15 20 years could be a one off invest, murder investigation anything like that there is a movement in reality television now to unionize bingo bingo that is one thing that could happen maybe people who work in reality television and and also game shows are technically reality television and a lot of those employ SAG-AFTRA actors, mm-hmm. some of whom won't go do their show in solidarity, some of whom will, but that is potentially affecting the studios as well. 
They may not have any content or programming because no one's there to write it, film it, act in it. Exactly. So, and again, this is something that I had heard, read in the last several hours. Perhaps there is an end to this WGA and SAG-AFTRA strike. You know, we see the success of the Barbenheimers. You're talking about almost $2 billion for two Mm -hmm. movies that employed hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, script writers and actors and producers and directors and people who do lighting and best boy and craft services, hairdressers, all of these people, it affects something much greater. Having said that, we're going to need next summer's blockbuster. And Mm -hmm. where is that going to come from? Is there a little bit of nervousness from producers or production companies to say, we better get back on track with this because people like to watch TV and movies and new ones, new shows. Working at a production company, yes, we want to go make the shows. I would much rather, honestly, be reading scripts and talking to actors and talking to writers and and managers and agents uh, than not. It is it is so much fun. It is you know, it is a privilege to be able to work in that. And that is what I would like to do. I'm kind of just sitting around. There's not a lot I can do. I'm, we really haven't talked about what you do. You're, you're still with Cobalt Night, yes? We still exist. Tell us what it is that you do in terms of your role at Cobalt Night and what Cobalt Night produces. I am the creative executive for Cobalt Night, which is a small... Um, mostly genre production company. We find human interest type stories within the genre sphere of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, or prestige drama. And we make film and television. We're working in the comic book space. So my job is to find the projects that we want to produce. And that can come from a short story. It can come from a, a, a graphic novel, manga, video game. We've had some recent success in board games. Could you be original script? It can be anything that could translate to a film or television show. How is a board game translated to a feature-length movie? Starts with the writer and an idea. I mean, how does Barbie translate into a feature film? She's a doll who people play with, but it's a billion-dollar movie. Right. So it had it starts with the creative idea of a kernel of something, of an idea of Barbie. She lives in her, uh, in her dream world and all of a sudden thinks about death. And that's is a whole movie. So mm-hmm. it starts with the writer and an idea. I mean, Mattel, they're, they're going to exploit their entire oh, yeah. collection now because it works. Why are we so preoccupied? Because I know that you are interested in genre projects and sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Mm-hmm. And there has been such a rise in all of those. You know, you can look at the success of Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, um, American Horror Story. Story, yeah. Why are we so fascinated with that? Part of the reason I think is the best genre pieces can talk about difficult to discuss issues in a way that doesn't, that kind of sugarcoats it a little bit. One of the examples that we talk about a lot at Cobalt Night is the original Star Trek series. At its heart, like it was a space adventuring show. Like there's no denying that. But so many episodes dealt with other things. Had the first interracial kiss on network television, primetime network television. It dealt with American imperialism and the Cold War and immigration and so many other things. But you don't think about that aspect of it most of the time, unless you're like me, a big Star Trek fan, because it is a space romp show. Like you're you're out adventuring in space. It's fun. That is what draws us to genre and kind of why we like these stories is because you can tell 
something else about the human condition, about humanity in an interesting light. I think about uh, shows like The Simpsons, which are fully animated. What were they mm -hmm. on, like year 35 or something of The Simpsons? I something mean, it's, like yeah. it's yeah. ridiculous. There are things that you can say and do on an animated show that if you did that in live action, people would lose their minds. Mm -hmm. It's just a different medium to tell a story that you couldn't necessarily get away with in a different format. As these strikes are continuing, are you waiting to figure out what the next step is as a company that develops and pitches? Is there any under-the-radar pitching and developing? I'm, I'm sure there is... So we are still trying to develop various projects. We are ta oftentimes talking to other production companies to see if we want to work on a project or if they have the IP rights, if they hold the rights to a book or a game or whatever that they want to partner with, or if we have the same thing. We are still doing some developing. We're working on pitch materials, kind of practicing amongst ourselves what we're going to say. And we do check in on occasion with our um, network colleagues of what are you looking for at the moment? Can't Do we have something that you are now looking for? But it's all kind of hard because one, there's probably going to be a lot of change of what everyone is looking for once we get out of this. And two, even if we have the exact thing they're looking for, we can't hire a writer or actors for it. Not now you can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there will be an end to this. I'm married to an attorney who says the best negotiations is when both sides walk away feeling like they could have done better. <laughs> but but it's good enough. So once things are good enough between the parties, people are going to want to hit the ground running. Let's get this show mm -hmm. on the road and let's produce something now. So mm -hmm. I, I've got to think that there's some at least precognition going on or some cognition about what the next step is. And a lot of that is the working on the, the pitch documents, the um, having ideas of who you want to talk to as writers or actors, like building lists of like, oh, you know, who'd be great for this role? Or I love this person's writing on this show or, or movie or whatever. Like, let's see if we can talk to them. So it's doing a lot of that, all the prep work you would normally do so that when it does end, you have all of that material ready. Are you optimistic this will be resolved sooner than later? And will it result in better conditions? I'd like to think it will resolve sooner rather than later. Obviously not up to me. There has been, I think, some sort of reckoning in the last couple of years with COVID, with the Me Too movement with Black Lives Matter, with various books about Hollywood, and especially the, the younger generation, work-life balance, mental health, all the awareness of these issues that conditions will get better because no one wants to be told that, you know, it's making you stronger or tougher to suffer through all this stuff and you'll you'll make it better in the meantime. Let's just make it good now. I was thinking, and I, I don't want to get political about this, but it's it looms on the horizon. The former president has said if he's elected and his team, he's pretty well organized in terms of putting together policy, if you will, in ways that hadn't <laughs> occurred before. There's talk about the elimination of the FCC, that certain shows just will not be able to happen. You know, certain personalities will not be able to appear perhaps anywhere because of the deregulation or different types of regulation towards the FCC. Which would be strange, not being able to see 
people and things we're used to. Which is a whole other layer, probably a conversation for another time. I do want to go to, because I think this is really cool, you migrated from being more academic in your background to helping develop and pitch different types of media. I had read that you have lectured on and you did a dissertation or a thesis on music from the British invasion, like the 1960s music that came to the United States or permeated the world for a, a brief amount of time. What drew you to all of that music or was it just the concept of it happening? Uh, so I grew up in a household where my stepfather owned a vinyl record store. Uh, so he not only owned a store, we had 10,000 records in the house and a vinyl record player so we could actually play them. Um, so I was always had music around me and, and loved it. And I would still say that a lot of that music is still around and you hear it all the time. Uh, Ted Lasso used a Rolling Stone song. So, you know, classic rock or whatever you want to call it. Uh, like I grew up around that. And so I was always fascinated with the idea of just music in general. When I was going to grad school, I'd originally gone to grad school for history, wanting to study um, 17th century like religious tolerance because I found that fascinating. And ended up taking a course on uh, rural England, and we talked about folk music. And I'm like, oh, I can write about music. All right, I'll write about music then. <laughs> so ended up writing about music and uh, national identity and what does it mean to be British or American in the quote-unquote British invasion, because, you know, the Beatles were very inspired by Motown, uh, Black artists, country music, took a lot of inspiration from American music, but they're known as this British band. Yes. Um, so I was I was fascinated by the idea of national identity and, like, how do you see that through music or in the people who make music? So that's kind of where all that comes from. Do you see any parallels now in terms of, uh, you know, music that has a cultural root that has gained popularity with perhaps a whole different either, you could say, type of person or generation of people? Uh, I think there has been so much crossover in styles of music. Not that there wasn't ever crossover before. The argument has been made that uh, country and blues music, they have the same root. They appeal to a lot of the same audience. This year is, I believe, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. So there has been like more crossover. Hip hop used to be a distinctly appeal to a certain demographic of people in certain places. And now it is permeated all across all sorts of different types of music and people. I believe country artists doing songs that feature hip hop artists. And so like you wouldn't have gotten that five years ago, let alone 10, 20, 30. Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash would not have worked with Snoop Dogg. So I, I think there's just there's been so much collaboration between different types of artists that um, we're getting exposed to so many different things nowadays that's kind of opened our eyes to like, oh, I may not be the quote unquote target demographic for whoever this is, but we can relate to it. Right. So this melting pot, this mm-hmm. social experiment, political experiment for, that started, you know, 300 years ago is now permeating every type of every corner of our culture really says so much about what we become attracted to if we have those choices. There have been shows that I would have never thought to watch. I remember telling people about Ted Lasso because uh, one is one of my favorite shows now. Someone once pitched it as a workplace comedy that happens to be set at a, a, a football soccer stadium. If you don't like soccer, if you don't like comedies, that may not appeal to you. But like 
once you watch it, it, it becomes more than that. You said something about this earlier. It's really the humanity. So whether it mm-hmm. is uh, in a universe far, far away, or whether it's on a soccer field, we find ways to relate to those people, which is what makes scripted shows like novels so important, because how do we learn to empathize? We can't travel everywhere. We can't be everywhere. Not all of us are as privileged to see all types of cultural phenomenon, books and TV shows and movies can bring us to places that we would never go and say, oh, they're really like us. Their heads are slightly larger and they're blue, but they have the same feelings. Yes. And I think empathy is a great word for it, especially in the last couple of years with the rise of streaming. And um, there's been numerous companies and organizations that have been striving to show underrepresented, underprivileged peoples uh, on screen that we have been able to access and see movies and shows that we wouldn't have got to see 20 years ago. There's shows set in the heart of Chicago, Americans, Blacks, that are on big streaming services that have lots of reach. Yes. Um, And so, you know, we have the opportunity to see these shows and be like, oh, yeah, these, these are all awesome. I, I didn't know anything about X culture before, uh, I think speaks to our, our um, educational system somewhat rather than necessarily who we are as people. But uh, that is a different topic as well. This has been a great conversation, Colin. I want to meet up again after all of this is done to hear what you're working on that you can talk about. My own projects, I'm, I'm working on uh, things I never thought I would work on. So that uh, that is kind of fun. Oh, so you are working on some things right now. Personally, yes, I, I am uh, attempting to write my first novel. Growing up, I thought I was going to be a writer. I didn't realize I was going to be a screenwriter. Mm. Um, I, I always had the idea. I, I wrote really bad poetry as a kid, really bad short stories. I was one of the novelists who never actually wrote a novel, like, but now I am actually writing it. I'm in the brainstorming research phase, but I'm finding it fascinating. And it's all coming together in my head so far. And Soon I will be writing it down. It's a solitary pursuit. I wish you the best with that because that's a huge achievement. Just sitting down and putting words on the paper is a good place to start. You can't edit what isn't there. The advice that I've heard is write drunk, (laughs) edit sober in whatever way you want to take that. uh, Hemingway, I believe, said that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He was a wise man for that reason. Some good books came out of that. It's a real pleasure. We'll see you again soon. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Colin Nyberg, Development Executive, Screenwriter, and Creative Mind at Cobalt Night. If you like what you hear on Embark, share this episode on social media, tell a friend, and please subscribe. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or you just want to say hi, you can get in touch with me at liz at lizsolar.com. We know you have a busy week, and time is limited, so I appreciate the privilege of your time. Have a great week and see you next time on Embark.